but invite you to take your Bibles and turn in them with me to the book of Ephesians. It's in the New Testament. And if you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find our passage in Ephesians 4 on page 978 today. We're picking back up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We finished uh, chapter 4, verse 24. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 25, and read down through chapter 5, verse 2 this morning. I encourage you to listen along as I read to you from Ephesians 4, verse 25 through 5, verse 2. Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul writing these words. Thank you for preserving them in such a way that we can read them this morning. And even though the context seems so far away from us, both geographically and from a time perspective, we pray, Father, that you would show us through the work of your Spirit who we ask to be present here right now, that these words are as real and as true today as they ever have been. Open our eyes, Father, and help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We like to know specifics. Knowing specifics is good. Just think of it this way. Your car starts making some noises. So you take it down to the mechanic. He puts it up on the lift and evaluates it and figures out what's wrong with it and gives you an estimate for $1,000. But doesn't tell you anything about what is wrong and what needs to be fixed. That would not sit well with you. You would want to know the specifics of what he found and why it's going to cost $1,000 to fix your car. Or think of it this way. You go to visit your doctor for a regular checkup. Doctor comes in and does the test that they do and looks you over and does all the things of the normal checkup and sits down with you and says, there are some things you need to work on. And then gets up and walks out. Doesn't give you any details. Doesn't give you any specifics. It would frustrate you. You would want to know, what is it I need to work on? What is it that my doctor has found that I need to be working on? Or think of it this way. You go and you buy a new piece of furniture. Assembly required. 
And all of the pieces are there. All of the, of the parts that you need to put it together are there. But there are no instructions, no specifics or details about how to put it together. You're on your own for getting all of the pieces together in exactly the right way. It would be incredibly frustrating. Or perhaps another example. You make a goal in this new year to get out of debt and to stop living paycheck by paycheck. But you don't have any details or specifics of that plan. No budget. It's probably not going to go very well. You're probably not going to have much success. Or a last example. You have this beautiful piece of art in your mind that you would like to have created. And so you contact one of the very many gifted artists in our congregation. Commission them for this very wonderful piece of art that you have in your mind that you would like to have in your own and yet you don't give them any details or specifics of what you're thinking about. That's going to frustrate not only them but also you in terms of what you end up getting. We like, we need, we want specifics. Just getting general information or receiving a general comment or getting a general diagnosis or coming up with some kind of general plan without any specifics won't work and it will lead to frustration and failure in our lives. And Paul understood that. He's writing this letter as we've been looking at over the fall and now into the the winter. And and he's writing this letter to these people. In the beginning part of the letter, the first three chapters, he, he goes into great detail, great specificity about what is true, about who God is, about who we are about the problem of sin, about the promise of redemption and the accomplishing of reconciliation with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The first three chapters are filled with rich, deep theology. And now in these last three chapters, chapters 4 through 6, Paul moves to say, now you know what is true about God and about sin and about you and all the work that has been done in redemption. So now, here is what you're supposed to do. In other words, what we believe is supposed to have an impact on how we live. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And there, Paul gave them a general principle of what it means to to live out their faith. What it means to take what is true and now do what God is calling them to do. He gave them a general principle about that. But today, Paul's going to get specific. He's going to give them details. He's going to give them and us the specifics of what it looks out like to live out our faith. So that today what I want us to do is, first of all, to remind ourselves of the principle that Paul gave them, the, what that principle was. Secondly, how they're supposed to live that out, the specifics that he gives them. And then lastly, why they should do it, the motivation that they should have. So first of all, let's remind ourselves of what Paul told them, the principle of how to live out their Christian faith. If you'll turn back to chapter 4, verse 1, here in the transition from this rich, deep theology to the application that Paul wants them to start uh, applying into their lives. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There's the principle. You are to walk in a manner worthy 
of the calling to which you've been called. It, that idea of walking is going to come up again and again in Ephesians. It came up, we saw last time in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And at the end of the passage that we're looking at for today in chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love, he says. This idea of walking has the idea of living out the Christian faith. In light of chapters 1 through 3, and all that God has done for us, how are we to live, how are we to walk out our faith? How is our life to become more and more conformed to God's Word and to the life of our Savior? Now Paul gives them a description of what that looks like. What does it look like to walk out their faith? What does that look like? And he looked. we saw that last time in verses 22 and verse 24 of chapter 4. He says, part of what it means to walk out your faith is to put off your old self, he says in verse 22. That belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You are to put off the old way of living, put off the old man. And the other aspect of that principle of walking in a way worthy of the calling to which we've been called is in verse 24. It's not just putting off the old ways. It's also, he says, putting on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are to be, as God's people, we are to put off the old ways that we used to live, the old things that we used to say, the old ways that we used to think. And we are to put on the new self, the new ways that we are to speak and to think and to act. We are to put on the ways that are helping us to live in accord with what the scriptures say is a life that is pleasing to the Lord. It, it is something that would be a substantive, noticeable change in how we live now that we are in Christ Jesus. There's the principle. Walk according to who you are. And that walking means to put off the old way of living and to put on the new way of living. Now, he gives us the specifics. There are at least five of them here in this passage, five that we'll look at today. The first one is in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Here's the first specific. Put off falsehood. And put on truth speaking. That word that he used there of, of falsehood means deceit or untruth or lies. And, and it certainly means what we think it means. Stop lying. That, that it doesn't become a believer in Christ the, to, to lie. That's the old man. He says put that off. Put that off the, the, the lying that you do. And it's certainly what it means. But it goes beyond that. Our own Westminster Larger Catechism as it explains what the ninth commandment is about not bearing false testimony, about, about not lying, talks about this idea of falsehood meaning concealing the truth. So you see what he's saying? is that Not only are we not to lie, we're not to conceal the truth. Now how do we conceal the truth? Well, the common way we conceal the truth is we put up a false front. We make people think one thing about us when something else is actually true on the inside. That's falsehood. And Paul says that's the old way of living. You are to no longer conceal the truth. You are to be the real you. 
No longer trying to make people look, make people think that you are better than what you actually are. Or even more dramatically, leading a, a secret or double life. Pretending to be one thing, but actually living in a completely different way. This word of falsehood also has the idea of, of exaggeration. And Paul's saying, no longer are we to be exaggerating. Exaggerating is not telling the, the truth, the truth the way it is. It's falsehood. And, and notice, we can exaggerate both about positive things and about negative things. We can make good things better than they actually are. And we can make bad things worse than they actually are. And Paul says that has no place for you anymore. You are not to have that as part of your life. Another aspect of this is speaking untrue things about other people. Either intentionally misconstruing their intentions. Or simply by not doing the work of actually trying to know and understand what somebody is saying and putting words into their mouth. Paul says that is falsehood and that is to be put off as part of the old man. And instead, we are to speak the truth. The Westminster Larger Catechism, as I mentioned, has uh, a, a number of questions that help us to understand the commandments. And on the ninth commandment, uh, they not only tell us about the, the sins that, are, uh, that are, are forbidden in the Ninth Commandment, the, what it means to, to, to put off falsehood, but they also have a question that talks about what are the duties required in keeping the Ninth Commandment. In other words, what does it mean to speak truth? When Paul says speak truth, what does that mean? Listen to what they say. The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man, and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth, and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice, and in all other things whatsoever." A charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report, and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. That's pretty exhaustive of a list, but did you notice how many of the things that they came up with about speaking the truth have to do with speaking the truth to our neighbor? That's why Paul says here in verse 25, put away falsehood and let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now often, as you probably know, when the word neighbor comes up in the Bible, it's speaking about anybody that the Lord brings across our path. But I think specifically here, Paul is referring to believers in Christ because that's why he goes on and talks about the fact that they're members of one another. Members of the body of Christ together. And what he says is that as God's people put off the old way of living, of speaking lies and falsehood and untruths and concealing the truth, and instead speak the truth to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that includes protecting their good name. 
It's also interesting that Paul earlier in chapter four told us uh, something else about speaking the truth. He said, speak the truth to our neighbors. How? In love. And that means that when we speak the truth, we ought to be real and genuine and upfront. What you see is what you get. Honest and truthful, even when it hurts, but we're doing it in love. In love, motivated by love, and lovingly. That's the first specific that he gives us. Put off falsehood, falsehood and put on speak, truth speaking. The second one is in verses 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The second specific is that we are to put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. Paul's actually quoting here from Psalm 4, verse 4. It's a direct quote in verse 26. And what he's telling them is that they are to get rid of the sinful anger that is in their hearts and in their lives. We're going to talk in a little bit, in just a minute about a little more of what that anger looks like. You can see it in verse 31. He mentions bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. But let it suffice to say right now, I think we have at least a sense of what sinful anger is in our hearts. And Paul is saying it is to be rooted out in the life of the Christian. We are to root it out and not just to root it out, but to root it out quickly. Notice what he says. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I know some like to take that very literally and they literally will not go to bed at night until they're able to reconcile with someone that they may have an argument with or quarreling with. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but I don't think Paul's meaning for this to be a literal thing. It's a principle in the ancient cultures. There were many things in life that had to be done at sundown. Just out of necessity, not having electricity and only having fire. And so you had to have certain things completed. They had to be done by sundown or they were finished at that point. And that principle is what he's applying here as we root out the anger that we feel and see in our lives. This idea that the anger that we have in our lives is not to be nursed. It's not to be nurtured. It's not something that we are to allow to fester and to grow. It is something that we are to root out quickly. Put off sinful anger. But notice he also says that we are, as God's people, to put on righteous anger. You see what he says there at the beginning of verse 26? Be angry. It's an imperative. It's a command. He is calling God's people to put off sinful anger, yes, but to put on a righteous anger. There is such a thing as an anger that is right, that is righteous. We see it in the life and ministry of Jesus at times. With injustice being done, evil being done, and Jesus got angry. And we know from the scriptures that Jesus never sinned. He expressed and showed us a righteous anger. And that means that for us as God's people in the face of blatant evil and sin and injustice, it is wrong for us not to be angry. For example, when we come face to face with the blatant disregard for the sanctity of life at any stage, it should rear up a righteous anger in our hearts. 
when we hear about laws that are being contemplated in the states of New York and Virginia that would allow people to end the life of a human child all the way through the ninth month of pregnancy and even after the child is born, it should stir up a righteous anger in our hearts. When we hear about a law that's being considered in the state of New Mexico that would make euthanasia legal for people with health illness, whatever that means, it should stir up in our hearts a, a righteous anger. When we see image bearers of the Creator being treated with a lack of dignity that they deserve simply because they bear the image of God, it should stir up a righteous anger in our hearts. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see racism happening... Or when those thoughts come into our own hearts and minds, it should stir up a righteous anger. And Paul knows how easy it is for us to go from a righteous anger to a sinful anger. And so he gives them that careful qualification and saying, don't let it linger. Deal with it. Don't give an opportunity for the devil to manipulate and destroy by using sinful anger in your lives. But be angry about the things that we should be angry about. That's the second specific. Put off sinful anger, put on righteous anger. The third one is in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Put off stealing, he says, and put off, put off stealing and put on honest work. Apparently, this must have been an issue for the Ephesians. He wrote to them specifically about stealing and to stop doing it. Our, our Westminster Larger Catechism helps us to understand what stealing looks like. Certainly, it means taking what doesn't belong to you. That's just the plain, obvious meaning of stealing, right? You take something that doesn't belong to you, and that's certainly part of it. But the Westminster Divines help to unpack it for us to see that there's a lot more to it than just taking what doesn't belong to us. Unfaithful and unjust contracts with others. Failing to give what we owe to people is considered stealing. Coveting and envying the prosperity of others. Not being moderate in our own pursuit of worldly goods. Idleness at work. Stealing from our employers. Gambling. Frivolous lawsuits. This is all the, the kinds of things that are packed into this idea of stealing. And Paul says, that's the old way of living. You're not to be living that way anymore. You are to put that off. And instead, he says, you are to pursue honest work. The words here for labor and for work have the sense of laboring to the point of being weary. Not only are we to put off stealing, we are to be about the business of doing hard work. Of doing work that is honoring to the Lord and is laboring and is causes us to be weary. And he mentions here specifically manual labor, but I think it's, specific, it's, it's generally more than just manual labor. It's that and all work. Whether you're a student or a doctor, a stay-at-home parent, a law enforcement officer, an artist, a farmer, a nurse, a ministry worker, whatever your calling and work may be. 
God's given you work to do. It's good work. He has created us to do good work and he's created the work for us to do. It's part of our calling and we are to do it honestly and without stealing. And did you notice that Paul also gave them the reason for doing that good work at the end of verse 28? That he may have something to share with anyone in need. Part of the purpose of work is that we might provide for ourselves, for our families, but also that we might have enough that we can use to provide for other people who are in need around us. It's an idea that's repeated throughout the scriptures. So that's the third specific, to put off stealing and to put on honest work. The fourth one is in verses 29 and 30. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Put off corrupting talk and put on speech that builds up, he says. That word corrupting is a very interesting word. It, 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 it has a sense that the people who were reading this for the first time, when they saw that word, a word picture would have come to their minds. It's a word that's used in other places in the, in the New Testament for describing rotten fruit on a decaying tree. It's also used in the New Testament to describe rotten fish. So you see what Paul's saying. That kind of talk that brings decay and rot is to be put off. That's part of the old man. It's the opposite of what builds up. It's harmful. It tears down. It destroys. It brings decay and rot like a rotten piece of fruit or like a rotten piece of fish. It could look like abusive and harsh language toward your spouse or toward your children or toward your parents. It could look like gossip. It could look, look like highlighting the faults of other people in order to bring them down and belittle them. And do you see what Paul says about that? It's like taking a rotten tomato and taking a big old bite out of it. It's like walking along the North Shore in the heat of summer and seeing a fish that's on the shore that's been there for a week and you pick it up and you take a bite. That's the corrupting talk that he's talking about. And he says, put it off. That's, that's no longer like you. You are, are a new person. You are a new creation and that's the old way. Instead, you ought to have speech, he says, that builds up, that is helpful, edifying, constructive, that brings health rather than decay. So that, he says at the end of verse 29, it may give grace to those who hear. The corrupting talk tears down and brings decay and rot. But the talk that we are supposed to have in our lives is that which brings grace into people's lives. And I want you to notice that it's so important to him that he attaches something really significant to this particular specific. Did you see what he said in verse 30? There's an and there. He's connecting what he says in verse 30 to what he said in verse 29. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. There's something about Christians speaking to people with corrupting language, decaying, rotten language that brings grief to the Holy Spirit. And I'll confess to you, I don't completely understand what that means. The word grief, the word grief here means 
to bring emotional distress and sadness. And I don't completely understand how that can be the case with the third person of the Trinity, but Paul says it's true. That when we speak to people with this kind of language, we are bringing emotional distress and sadness to the Holy Spirit. He says we instead ought to be people who bring speech that builds up. It's constructive. that brings grace to those who hear it. That's the fourth specific. The fifth one, the last one that we'll mention this morning, is in verses 31 and verse 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Put off an unforgiving hard-heartedness and put on a tender-hearted forgiveness. Unforgiving hard-heartedness. What does that look like? Well, he gives us these words. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. What do those words mean? Bitterness means a sharp, sustained, intense resentment. It's harboring past hate and resentment. It's holding a grudge. Wrath and anger are almost synonyms in the Greek language and they both have this sense of an internal anger. That, that nurturing and festering and cultivating an anger inside of ourselves. And clamor is that internal wrath and anger getting out. The word clamor means a loud scream or a shout. It's, it's that anger that we've... Nurtured and cultivated on the inside, eventually erupting. Usually at someone else. Slander, also an outward evidence of that internal anger, is a harmful, abusive speech against the reputation of another. Defaming them. Lying and gossiping about someone. And malice is this idea of a hateful feeling, a mean-spirited attitude, a nastiness, being cruel toward one another. And all of these things are typified of of an unforgiving heart. At the end of verse 32, he's going to tell us to forgive. And so the opposite of that is an unforgiving heart, an unwillingness to forgive as we have been forgiven. He says, brothers and sisters in Christ, that is not to be you anymore. Those are the old ways that you are to put off. Instead, you ought to have a kind, tender-hearted forgiveness, he says. That word tender-hearted literally means to have happy intestines. That you ought to be so kind and compassionate and it ought to come from your gut. You ought to be a person that is typified by being forgiving. Gracious, generous, long-suffering, and patient. Why? What does Paul say is the reason you should be that way? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how gracious and generous and long-suffering and patient and forgiving has God been to you? That's how forgiving and long-patient, long-suffering and patient you should be with one another. 
five specifics as he drills down into what it means to put off and to put on, what it means to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling that which we have been called to. This list of specifics, this list of character qualities as we think about them, as we meditate on them, as we evaluate our lives and how we match up and what Paul is saying here, they can become overwhelming. There ought to be a heaviness as you hear what Paul is saying here and the specifics of what he is saying. And even more so when we move to what he says in the verse five or chapter five, verse one, therefore be imitators of God. It's not only it's, it's more than just imitating Paul and what he's saying here. He wants us to imitate God in all of his perfections. And as we meditate on that, we recognize that it's impossible. There are 13 imperatives in these verses. It'll be impossible. It'll be crushing. The weight will crush us unless we have the right motivation. We have the right reason to live this way. Did you notice that Paul gave us the motivation? He, he wove it all the way through these verses. As he's giving us all of these imperatives and telling us what it is that we are to be living, he wove into it the work of the Trinity. Did you see that? What does he say in verse 1 of chapter 5? Be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. <laughs> He's giving us a picture of God as our Father. And what has our Father done? Well, he said at the end of verse 32, God has forgiven us in Christ. Your heavenly Father, because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, has forgiven you. He has redeemed you. He has reconciled you. So much so that he says, you are now a beloved child. Your status has changed from unforgiven to forgiven. From guilty to innocent. From orphan to beloved child. And it's not just the Father that He reminds us of these things about. He also reminds us of the Son in verse 2 of chapter 5. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's a reminder of not only how much our Father loves us as a Father loves His children, but how much Jesus loves us as our Savior. He loves us so much that He gave Himself in our place he went to the cross and took our sin upon himself and sacrificed himself willingly, becoming, as he says, a fragrant sacrifice. The righteousness of Jesus rising to the throne room of judgment itself, such that we now are considered faultless and blameless and righteous as Jesus is. And it's not just the Father and the Son, but he also mentions the Holy Spirit in chapter 4, verse 30. He says it's because of the Holy Spirit that we have been sealed for the day of redemption. If you're in Christ this morning, not only has your Father in heaven forgiven you because of Jesus Christ and adopted you into His family, not only has the Lord Jesus Christ gone to the cross and paid for your sins and become a fragrant offering in the sight of God for you, but God has now stamped you with the Holy Spirit who is indwelling in you as a seal. Meaning that you are forever protected and preserved until the very day of redemption. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in the middle, midst of all of these specifics that Paul is giving us, all of these imperatives, all of these commands of how we're to put off and to put on, 
Paul is reminding us that it is only as we put our faith and trust in the work that God does for us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working together in perfect unity, securing our redemption, loving us and paying for our penalty of sin, adopting us into His family, protecting and preserving us all the way to the end. The more that we see the love of God for us, the more that we see what He has accomplished for us, the more that we'll be empowered and motivated, strengthened to go out and to live like who we are. Which Paul, by the way, describes the description of who we are. We are loved by Christ who is our sacrifice in chapter 5 verse 2. We are beloved children in chapter 5 verse 1. We are forgiven once and for all in chapter 4 verse 32. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit in verse 30. And we are united with and members of one another in verse 25. To the degree that the the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit grips our hearts and our imaginations. To that degree, we will be motivated and empowered to live out these specifics more and more in our lives. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're, we're utterly amazed of... The fact that even though these words that Paul wrote were written so long ago to people so far away in a context that seems so hard for us to imagine, they apply to us in much the same way. So we pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would truly grab our hearts and our minds today. First and foremost, with the gospel of your grace and the extent of your work and your love for us as your beloved children. And that you would empower and strengthen us to put off all of these old ways of living. May they be characterized in our life no more. And may we put on all of these wonderful qualities that are honoring and glorifying to you. And can be used by you to build your church and your kingdom. Would you do this for your glory but also for our good. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Another way we can think about what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4, really the first four chapters of Ephesians, is that God's love for God's people will never fail. Jesus loved us and gave himself as a sacrifice willingly, as a fragrant offering, something that was done and completed, something that is finished and perfect. And now we have been adopted into God's family as His beloved sons and daughters. And His love for us is based on His work in the Lord Jesus Christ and how He has created us and brought us into His family. And that love can never fail. That's what this table points us to as we come to it to conclude our service today. That God's love for His people will never fail. And as a result of that truth... As the Holy Spirit works it more and more into our hearts and our minds and our imaginations, we ought to live with lives and souls that are at peace and are fully satisfied. So when we come to this table as believing brothers and sisters in Christ, we come and we make a profession of faith that God's love for me 
through the Lord Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection and ascension will never fail. And that I believe and I trust in that gospel of grace. And that it's my intention, it's my commitment to leave this place satisfied in the gospel and to go out and live like who I am. Not that we're going to do it perfectly this week, but that my desire resting on the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, my desire, my intention, my commitment is to go out and to put off the old man and to put on the new man. If that's you this morning, if that's your profession of faith, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are trusting in Him alone for your salvation, clinging to the gospel of grace as your only hope in life and death, and your desire is to put off the old man and to put on the new man and to go out and to live for the Lord, then as the trays are coming around, eat and drink, be reminded of this wonderful message of the gospel, be encouraged, be strengthened in your faith, be ready to go out and to live for Him. But if that's not your profession of faith or you've not made that public profession of faith here at Trinity or another church that believes the Bible is God's word and the gospel by grace alone, in Christ alone, then allow the elements to pass you by and instead use the time to meditate on the God that Paul is speaking about here in Ephesians 4 and ask him to reveal himself to you. Let's pause for a moment and thank the Lord for giving us this table. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord's Supper, this means of grace. We thank you that you give it to us as a way of pointing us to the truth that your love for your people will never fail. We thank you for giving it to us to point us to the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to strengthen us, to nourish us. We thank you for the reminder that you give to us of the calling that you give to us to go out and to desire and to truly intend to live for you this week ahead. We pray, Father, that you would be at work. Help us in all these things to be true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.